like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you well, Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I will be taking a look at A Game of Unchance. A Game of Unchance is really a story, I want to say about consumption. It's... It's a carnival story, which is really cool, too. I, I don't think he wrote any other straight-up carnival stories that I can think of. Um, I may not, may not be right about that, but there may be something I'm just forgetting about. But um, this is, I, I guess with uh, Simon Hill, my daughter, there's this idea of kind of mutants becoming circus freaks um, or having that role. Uh, certainly in The World Jones Made, there's a carnival scene. Uh, so he's he's kind of attached previously in other stories this idea of kind of performers with with mutants and, and precogs and people with side talents and this is a story that goes back to you know him writing about side talents he, he never stops writing about side talents he always has precogs but he's less obsessed with it by the 1960s this is kind of a throwback story in that way which is you know in the sense it's a really close examination of psi powers but it's also about consumerism in interesting ways and and anyways there's a lot going on it's it's a fairly lengthy story it's almost 20 pages um but it's a good one so uh, if you haven't read it yet i urge you to to check it out in fact um it was notable at the time it was published in amazing uh, one of the top um sci-fi literary magazines of the time so originally published in amazing in july 1964. Uh, you can now find it in the fifth volume of the collected stories, uh, the one titled Eye of the Sybil and other classic stories by Philip K. Dick. Uh, so anyways, let's just jump into the story and see what's going on here. So on Mars, we have a character, Bob Turk, watching as a carny ship arrives, promising, quote, freaks, magic, terrifying stunts, and women. So Turk goes to alert the settlement council that the carny ship is arriving. The last time that the Carnies came, they robbed the settlement of much of their crop. Yet he still felt that there's a deep need to be entertained. So there's some ambivalence here. It's, it's clear that these Carnies are going to exploit the local population, take their money, but also this idea that we, we need this, right? And I suppose this is a common theme of of carnivals right it's i guess gambling i guess is the thing now right do you bring gambling in it, it seems to create economic activity but it seems to be a drain on the pocketbooks of a lot of the poor people in the community so you know what do you do you know how do you balance that uh here it's more specifically the problem of the frontier and once again we get a, a little bit of dick's feelings on the frontier the frontier here is presented is just too dull right it, there's nothing it, this is really the the 1960s philip k dick frontier the March in Time Slip, Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge type of frontier, where it's just dull and boring and brutal. So Turk, Bob Turk, discusses with this uh, guy, Vince Guest, of their plan to, to use Fred, who's a quote-unquote quote talented, meaning he's got some kind of psi ability, but half-witted boy to win at the game. So the, the plan here is to let the Carnies come, but then, you know, trick them and take the money, you know, win it all. So don't let them win. 
He then walks on to see Hoagland Ray, the settlement's council chairman, who also runs a profitable store that provides tools to many of the Martian shepherds. So there's um, kind of a class status on, on Mars here over, you know, those who, who provide the tools to the farmers and, and, those, and the farmers themselves. Turk tells Hoagland Ray about the Carney ship. Hoagland is worried that they probably have an anti-sci in their company. So this effort to use Fred is going to fail. But, you know, he says, you know, we should we should try it. Anyways, he's, he's open to trying it. For practice and to show his father that he can do it, Fred Costner reveals to Psy Talents. He moves a rock. His father reminds him to, you know, that he's going to have to go there and find the game with the most valuable prize and then win that. At the carnival, Fred notices that one booth was being protected with some kind of anti-sciability, and that booth is the dunk tank. The target is a no-headed mutant. The prize seems to be just basic toys, but Fred is sure that these are the most valuable prizes and tries the game. Perhaps the reason he thinks these are the most valuable prizes is because that this particular event is being protected by from, from the manipulation of psi, psi powers. So sometime later, uh, Hoagland is reviewing one of the figurines that Fred won at the dunk tank. It's one of several that they won during the carnival. They actually had a fairly successful night. Fred won many prizes, and but Hoagland's trying to imagine its worth. It doesn't respond to voice commands. Before finishing his investigation, though, he learns that the dolls have started attacking the community. The figurines, revealed to be micro-robots, essentially suddenly disappear. So... There's kind of, in this sense, that the consumer good that one wins turns against you, right? And this is, again, a kind of an old old hat theme for Philip Dick, you know, from, I think, Colony was one of his first efforts where you actually have the toaster and things eating people and attacking people. Um, so later, Fred's father, Tony, is working in the field, and he kills one of these, kills a Martian gopher, uh, one of the native life forms there. On a closer expansion, though, he finds that the gopher is being controlled by a mechanical device. Hoagland studies this harness to confirm that it's being controlled from a source about a half a mile away. Tony starts to wish he was back on Terra, frustrated with the frontier and its problems. Meanwhile, Hoagland contacts the UN military about maybe a bigger problem here than, than just gophers. The UN military suggests that Terra was the target of these devices, and their winning the game disrupted the carnival's plan. They said they'll coat the area in arsenic gas, killing the livestock and making the area uninhabitable for colonists, but that will kill off the, the devices. The settlement will become then a front between the UN on Earth and the Falling Stars Entertainment Enterprises, which runs the carnival. Fred is wondering, though, if he could save the settlement by finding and defeating the micro-robs, these little robots. He later follows one that ran across his foot to a ship that they're using to leave Mars. He meets a woman there who does not seem to have psi abilities. She knows Fred is the one who won all the prizes at the, when, the, when the game was played. Fred tells her that the carnival's PK was just not very good, which she interprets as a request to join the carnival, right? So he says, well, I noticed that your, your, the psi talents of your people aren't that good enough, right? I was able to beat them. And so she says, oh, so you want to join us, right? It's basically, it's like a job, app, job interview is the way she reads it. Uh, she explains that they had wired rats in Hoagland's office and, you know, basically bugged his office with these rats. And then they knew right away that 
they called the UN. The micro robs would not have attacked would would have not have attacked had Hoagland not tampered with one of them. Instead of collecting the sixteen, the sixteen that were won and released, um, they decided they're going to release all of them onto the Martian surface. So a general wolf arrives to take over leadership at the settlement in this crisis moment. He explains that this has been happening to other communities, other frontier communities, you know, around the Terran system. The carnival arrives, they lose a fake side battle, uh, and then leave these microbots behind. He's not willing to explain the entire plan, but he sees it as a massive alien invasion, so significant that Mars will likely need to be abandoned. But they are trying to disrupt the circuits of the microbots in order to, you know, beat them. Sometime later, Bob Turk is examining his field, contaminated by the night activities of the microbots. Many families have already left for Terra, giving up on the frontier. He sees another ship carrying another carnival company, which is arriving. Vince and Turk talk about the carnival, but are titillated by the women, the sights and smell of the carnival. So it's just a circular thing. It's just a pattern that comes again. It's like they know this carnival is bad news, and but they're so bored <laughs> that they just need to see, you know, have the carnival sights. So, you know, they're already excited for the carnival coming again. Bob takes a closer look while Vince meets with Hoagland to discuss this. Tony argues that this carnival company is probably a good one, not like the last one. There's no reason to believe it has the same nefarious intentions as the other one did. Visiting the carnival, Fred, our, our telepath, our, our psi-powered guy, scouts both booths and scouts the booths of, of the carnival, and Hoagland asks if there's any prize that they may win. Fred locates a booth selling homeostatic traps that can catch micro-robots. Fred is sure that they can win those prizes, even if it means they'll have to give up most of what the settlement still has. So that's how the story ends. The story ends with basically a plan to win these traps, uh, which are, it's a really odd carnival prize. But I guess so were the figurines in the first place. They make a little bit more sense. But it's just, they're just working together, right? It's not a nefarious invasion. It's just a cycle of trying to make money, right? So you, you win them the they win the micro robots, the bots, you know, infiltrate the community and do all this damage. And then people need to get the traps. And well, you know, sales salesman is going to come to sell this, sell that, sell those things. In this case, it's a carnival, right? So it's going to be presented as a game. And so it's, it's a game of unchance, right? So there's nothing left to chance here, really. It's all pre-planned. It's basically a sales pitch. The first carnival is just a sales pitch of how they need these traps that are going to arrive later. And, and so that's the story. Um, what to say about this? As, as, I think there's a lot going on here. There's really cool stuff about the frontier. There's a little bit here on mutants and post-humanism. There's this kind of cycle of consumerism, right? That each consumer good begets another need, another consumer need, right? In this case, it's the bots necessitate a trap, right? And I suppose the trap will cause some problem that another carnival will have to come to solve, right? So these frontiersmen, instead of actually having social progress, are just tied into this cycle of consuming goods to solve this problem, to solve that problem, right? No real path forward for the future. It certainly is another example of Dick's criticism of the endless cycle of consumption. Uh, what we seem to have here on the surface is an alien force invading a planet using consumer goods, right? Dick wrote this before. You see it in War Game and Little Movement. It's an old idea of his. It's a good idea, too, but it's something he's done before. Aliens don't need to invade with troops. They just need to invade with our, with their ideas or their products. And that can, that can be a proxy for the actual conflict. 
In several other stories, Dick warned against the malevolent character of blind consumerism. In a sense, this story fits nicely alongside the novel The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, particularly in its portrayal of the tedious banality of life on the Martian frontier. And, you know, I guess he was probably thinking about The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, that book, when the story was being written in the first place. One reason that Carnival is so easily able to trap the people on the Martian settlement is that their life is just so horribly, horribly boring, right? No one wants to really live there. And even though they know these carnivals are bad for them, they, they keep going back to them, right? It's like an alcoholic who, you know, you know is drinking to cope with something in her, his or her life, you know, but knows it's bad for them, but, but continues to do it. Anything out of the ordinary just awakens their life just a little bit, just to give them that little bit of spark that they need to kind of make it through the day. It's not just that they hope they can find something they need in the prizes offered by the carnival. They're also attracted to the freaks, the food, and most importantly, the women, right? So I don't know if there's a woman shortage on Mars here. I, I don't think it's addressed directly, but maybe there's that too. Mars seems to be a place where sexual desires between spouses does, does reach their ultimate end, though. And that definitely we've seen in other uh, Dick stories where especially of the 60s, where the frontier becomes um, less a place for couples to remake their love life, but, you know, kind of the death knell of, of marriage. Certainly in Merchant Time Slip, you have that. Now, while the military rightfully sees these off-world carnivals as a threat, they don't understand the entire scheme. They only see the first half of it. They only see the carn that the carnival leaves behind small robots that kill livestock, poison the soil, and otherwise make agricultural life in the frontier impossible. They do not realize that this carnival is apparently followed by another one, uh, maybe the same company under a different banner, selling the traps to catch the robots. They're not really invaders at all. They're just manufacturing needs for the big payout later. Manufactured needs is something that people living in our late capitalist world, you know, don't need a really detailed lesson in. It happens all the time, right? You know, 20 years ago, no one needed cell phones, but now, you know, we need them. And just to get by, right? Your employers expect you to have it. Uh, the technology that you might need, even some certain apps, you can't download on your computer anymore. You need to you have a phone number to to access them. You know, what WhatsApp, WeChat, those 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 programs require a cell phone to even use. So you end up getting trapped into buying a cell phone, something you maybe 20 years ago you never thought was essential, but now has become one. You know, the old theory of manufactured needs. There's lots of examples of it. Now, Dick's mutants here are continuing their path towards becoming less and less heroic. As with Captive Market, we find people with amazing abilities using their talents to cheat at carnival games. For people raised on superheroes, it's a bit hard to understand. Um, but I find Dick's interpretation of the post-human mutants using their abilities to make a quick buck uh, the most believable, right? Most of these aren't going to become, you know, superheroes, right? I guess all the rich people in the world aren't, aren't becoming Batman, as far as I know. So that's, we live in the world where people take their abilities and use them to make money. Most people, talented people, you know, they, they find a way to profit off their talent if they can. Not necessarily make the world a better place. So I don't know if we did have someone with superhuman abilities, you know, would, how would that be used? I think it's a good question. We live in a world where an incredible amount of talent is being used to enrich corporations, devastate the environment, and degrade the worth of other human beings. What reason is there to believe that humans would do more than this with their abilities? So, uh, obviously, a lot going on in the story, a lot of fun with the story, um, but 
that's that's that. Um, I guess I don't have anything more to say about it. Uh, if you have your own thoughts about the game of Unchance, please post them below, or you can send me uh, an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would love very much to hear from you. Um, if, yeah, I guess that's it. Um, in the next episode, I'll be looking at The Little Black Box, which is a fairly important story in uh, written in 1964. This story predates like a very important technology, or it foreshadows a very important technology that's used in, in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, Never that stuff never appears in the Blade Runner movies, but it's a really important part of the story of the novel. That uh, now that this story doesn't have a connection to really a direct connection to Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep in a, in a plot in, a, in terms of plot or setting, but that technology is used in a very similar way in both of these stories. Uh, so that's a, a one about religion, and you know I know people often look at Dick as kind of a spiritual or religious, almost a guru-like writer. I, I don't like that way of looking at him, but you know this is a story about religion, and um, you know it's so I think it's important to look at because it's not him being religious. It's not. It's it's about him actually writing about religion and the way religion spread, and what are the core values of religions. So anyways, uh, that will be up next, The Little Black Box. So um, I'll be back shortly with my thoughts on, on that story. Um, so anyways, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. You must search till you find the bluebird. You will find peace and contentment forever. If you're